Y'all must go to church, you know when to settle down. Oh, you see the time going now? Good job. Good evening. Welcome to Wednesday Evening Chapel. How are you? Good, 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 good. It's good to have you. It is our privilege to have Dr. Tom King with us this evening. He's professor of Old Testament. He's going to be bringing us the word. We're continuing our, our theme to trust uh, throughout the year. Um, we've been focusing on Proverbs chapter 3. In the pr- first part of that passage, in the fall and the winter, we focus on trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. And here in the spring, our theme is trust in the Lord with all your heart and He will make your path straight. Say that with me. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and He will make your path straight. Amen. Let us pray that. Let us pray that this evening. God, it is our desire to trust in you with all our hearts. We believe that you are a living God. We believe that you're a God who is mindful of us. Thank you, God. And we believe that you're a God who saves. Help us to proclaim the good news, the gospel message, that you are a God who saves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I know that not all of you are called to preach. Nevertheless, I encourage you to consider consider this message in light of whatever form of ministry your particular call reflects. Our text for this evening is taken from 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. The opening verses of chapter 4, 1 through 4. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. In 1857, Anthony Trollope wrote, There is perhaps no greater hardship at present inflicted on mankind in civilized and free countries than the necessity of listening to sermons. In a book written in 1971, Henry Nouwen quoted that statement by Mr. Trelope and added, I would not be surprised to find many people today who are willing to agree with him. Now and continued by stating how amazing it is that so many preachers still want to preach and so many people are still willing to listen. He suggested the reason for this 
may be because people have a lasting desire to come to such an insight in their own condition and the condition of the world that they can be free to follow Christ. That is, to live their lives just as authentically as Christ lived his. Now in concludes that the purpose of preaching is to help people come to this basic insight. Centuries before Trelope or Nowen, a profound and solemn importance was attached to the task of preaching in a letter addressed to one named Timothy. Throughout the second letter to Timothy, some theme of great importance appears to be stressed. Exhortation builds in the letter until it turns into a solemn charge, practically an oath, in chapter 4. Beginning in chapter 1, verses 6 and 8, the reader is called to kindle afresh the gift of God and not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. In verse 13 of chapter 1, the reader is directed to retain the standard of sound words. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, the reader is encouraged to be strong, suffer hardship, entrust to faithful ones the things which he has heard. Chapter 2, verses 8 and 14, the reader is told to remember Jesus Christ and to charge others in the presence of God not to wrangle about words. In chapter 3, verse 14, the reader is urged to continue in the things he has learned and of which she has become convinced. Finally, the message explodes into an all-out charge, as with an oath. The author writes, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Jesus Christ. Something is obviously of great importance here. This something has to do with the call and charge to serve God. In the second verse of the entire epistle, as well as in the title, the original recipient of this letter is identified as Timothy. Timothy has apparently uh, served as a leader in the young church of the New Testament, understood to have been prepared for ministry by the Apostle Paul. This letter of 2 Timothy is included in the category of pastoral letters due to its focus on pastoral concerns. In conjunction with this focus, Timothy is pictured as a young pastor under the guidance of the chief pastor and administrator, Paul. So, as a result, I will take the liberty of referring to the intended reader of this letter as a minister or a pastor. In the opening verses, of chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, the pastor is instructed regarding a central feature of the call to ministry. Once again, verse 1 of chapter 4. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom, see, according to verse 1, a charge is given in the presence of God and in the presence of Christ Jesus. This speaks to the minister's position of being ultimately responsible to God. 
above the district superintendent, above the general superintendent, above the senior pastor, church board, and even above the wise old ladies in the church and the congregation itself. The minister is directly accountable to God. This suggests the profound position of being in the most secure comfort and at the same time in the midst of an awesome terror. The presence of God is aptly illustrated in the character of the lion named Aslan in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Allow me to read to you the description of the first encounter which the characters in the story have with the lion Aslan. As for Aslan, the children didn't know what to do or say when they saw him. People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrifying at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. When they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great, royal, solemn, overwhelming eyes. And they found they couldn't look at him. And they went all trembly. The lion shook his mane and clapped his paws together. Terrible paws, thought Lucy, if he didn't know how to velvet them. When the girls had gone, Aslan laid his paw and though it was velveted, it was very heavy on Peter's shoulder. The idea of comfort and terror emerges especially in terms of Aslan's great paws. Listen to a later scene in which Aslan invites the children to play with him. Oh, children, said the lion, I feel my strength coming back to me. Children, catch me if you can. He stood for a second, his eyes very bright, his limbs quivering, lashing himself with his tail, and then he made a leap high over their heads and landed on the other side of the table. Laughing, though she didn't know why, Lucy scrambled over it to reach him. Aslan leaped again. A mad chase began. Round and round the hilltop he led them, now hopelessly out of their reach, now letting them almost catch his tail, now driving between them, now tossing them in the air with his huge and beautifully velveted paws and catching them again and now stopping unexpectedly so that all three of them rolled over together in a happy, laughing heap of fur and arms and legs. It was such a romp as no one has ever had except in Narnia. And whether it was more like playing with a thunderstorm or playing with a kitten, Lucy could never make up her mind. And the funny thing was that when all three finally lay together panting in the sun, the girls no longer felt in the least tired or hungry or thirsty. Romping around and playing with the king of beasts with velveted paws is both comforting and terrifying. Like playing with a thunderstorm and a kitten all at the same time. So stands the minister before Almighty God. God's call is demanding and terrifying 
as illustrated by such familiar Christian phrases as total surrender, offering yourself as a living sacrifice, picking up your cross and following Christ. At the same time, God's call is the greatest comfort. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. He leads me besides still waters. Lo, I am with you always. If God is for us, who can stand against us? God's mercy is infinitely deeper than any human judge or supervisor. That is why when offered three possible punishments for his sin in 2 Samuel 24, David chose the one which put him into God's hands. For he said, God's mercies are great. Do not let me fall into the hands of man. To stand in the presence of God is thus a trembling and a comfort for the minister who is called. In addition to being charged in the presence of God in Christ, the minister is also called and charged in 4.1, chapter 4, verse 1, by the Lord's appearing and the Lord's kingdom. Lest we forget, in the midst of our self-sufficient, high-tech, Star Wars age of humanism, the reality of our life as believers is the kingdom of God. It's not just another means of social service or bringing home a paycheck. The minister leads people into the reality of a larger and greater kingdom. We don't want to fall into the trap of playing the game of religion, being simply Sunday Christians, using faith as a psychological crutch for good appearances, or for getting through hard times. The pastor is reminded that the call is wrapped up in a kingdom which is real and eternal. This kingdom is the realm of the God of creation the God of miracles, the God of all power and might, the God of love who swallows up sin and death. Thus the pastor is charged in the light of a reality which far exceeds any human or worldly accomplishments and abilities. So in the light of verse 1, what is the central feature of this call to ministry which has been introduced with such a solemn charge. Verse 2 of chapter 4. Preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. It's explicit. Preach the word. And what is meant by the word? The author doesn't bother to spell it out right here. It seems to be assumed that the reader knows exactly what's meant. Just like in the Old Testament, everyone must have known which of the three pilgrimage festivals was referred to by the various references which mention merely the feast like the assumption in the days of the Cola Wars, where everyone knows exactly which one is the real thing. 
like some of our modern Bibles today, which are simply entitled The Word. Well, just in case we've forgotten, the Apostle Paul provides his concept of what he believes to be the heart of the Word, which is to be preached. He provides this in Corinthians chapter 15, where it is written, I make known to you the gospel which I preach to you. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared. Furthermore, the message from Jesus himself in terms of what is most important expressed as the two greatest commandments. First of all, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And second, to love your neighbor as yourself. So great is this priority that Jesus claimed that upon these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. In terms of specific acts, we might generalize these two concerns as worship directed to God and service and care directed to others in love. Surely this too is part of the word which we are to preach. Also in verse 2 of 2 Timothy 4, the pastor is encouraged to be ready for this task of preaching in season and out of season. That is, there really is no season for preaching. It is always the time. One author writes, it's to be done whether the occasion is favorable or not, whether people will listen or not. Another writes that sometimes the preacher is popular and sometimes hated. It doesn't matter the circumstance. The author proclaims, preach the word. The opening of the epistle is identified as coming from the Apostle Paul. So this bold proclamation to preach on any occasion shouldn't surprise us coming from Paul. After all, it's associated with one who boldly preached in the midst of circumstances which landed him in jail or left him beaten on the road practically dead or running for his life. Why couldn't he have just stuck to preaching in those quiet conservative house churches? The gospel compels one. Preach the word. Sometimes the minister may feel personally out of season. The enthusiasm for God's word sometimes carries one like a mighty stream. But at other times, it's like a long, hard, uphill battle. Sometimes the preacher does not feel on fire for the Lord. Sometimes faith seems empty and dull and depressing as one feels burnt out. But the text of 2 Timothy presses us to preach. As in relationships, the key is not just feeling or emotion, but commitment. Whether we feel it or not makes no difference. The commitment must remain. Matthew Arnold wrote, we cannot kindle when we will the fire which in the heart resides but tasks in hours of insight willed 
can be through hours of gloom fulfilled. Carrying such responsibility as being the bearer of biblical truth demands patience. So the exhortation in verse 2 of chapter 4 tells one to preach with great patience. I believe that relates to humility. Think about it. After all these academic classes, including all the Bible knowledge and gaining all that training, you become filled with new insights and information. The pastor must remain humble and patient while instructing people in the ways of the Lord. One professor reminded us to never overlook the old lady in the rocking chair who walks close to God. Even though she may have a limited education, profound and practical wisdom from the Spirit often resides in such a devoted believer. Big words like theological, exegesis, prosodic analysis, text linguistics, pentateuchal sources, synchronic methodologies, Masoretic studies don't always carry the greatest importance. With patience and humility, the pastor must translate the depth of the gospel into practical, profound instruction for Christian living. Preaching is not to be used as an opportunity just to impress others with great personal intellect. A simple illustration of this is found in the young man who tried to impress an attractive girl after a botany class held at a major university. They're walking along and the young man picked up and held in his grip the leaves of a small plant. Wanting to show off an impressor with his great knowledge, he proclaimed, right here is an example of non-cyclic photophosphorylation. The girl replied, well, that may be true, but all I know is you're holding poison ivy. <laughs> the minister is to make use of all his or her talents and abilities, but always in patience and humility, knowing that ultimately he or she is only a tool of God for the glory of God. At this point in our text, the concern takes a little shift and speaks of an urgent reason for the importance of preaching the word. The concern here is for the maintenance of sound doctrine in the church. Verses 3 and 4 of chapter 4. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. The pastor is reminded of the need to maintain sound doctrine. The appeal here is to stick to the basics of the gospel, not to lose sight of the gospel. The preacher needs to be conscious about always picking up controversial issues and propping them up with scriptures in order to be popular or just to be a troublemaker. It's true that the gospel sometimes must be preached in a way that is uncomfortable 
for the congregation to hear. Sometimes the gospel brings conviction as it should. We often associate those kinds of challenging messages with the prophetic role of preaching. Nevertheless, such confrontation should come from a concern within the gospel itself and should not be forced upon it. People often respond with deaf ears as if they heard nothing to an overdramatic pulpit protester. It's like the minister who went on a raging tirade about drinking in a small town. He arranged to have all the liquor from the stores in this small town dumped into the river. And he concluded his message by saying, next week you'll see the river flowing high with liquor. I've said my piece, now let's sing. So the music director promptly stood up and invited the congregation to sing the hymn, Shall We Gather at the River? The concern of 2 Timothy 4 is for sound doctrine based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, it does call for dramatic action, which may sometimes appear radical, but one must maintain proper focus and not stray from the word of the gospel and keep check on proper motivation. Another danger, even more explicit in the text, is that people will desire to have their ears tickled. That is, they want to hear only what makes them feel comfortable and justifies their own way of life. Or they want to hear something new and entertaining all the time. Wanting to hear only what's comfortable and justifies my own way of life is illustrated by some of the kings in the Old Testament. Some of them actually hired prophets who would say only what the king wanted to hear, as opposed to God's chosen prophets who spoke the word of the Lord. Just like the concern here in the text of 2 Timothy regarding those who accumulate teachers in accordance with their own desires. Such a practice, however, places the false teacher, preacher, and listener in a very dangerous position. As the prophet Jeremiah makes clear with the following words. Jeremiah 23, verses 28 to 32. The prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word in truth. What does straw have in common with grain, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declared the Lord, who steal my words from each other. Behold, I am against the prophets, declare the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, the Lord declares. Behold, I'm against those who have prophesied false dreams, declares the Lord, and related them and led my people astray by their falsehoods and reckless boasting. Yet I did not send them or command them, nor do they furnish this people the slightest benefit, declares the Lord. Our text also expresses a concern over those who turn away from truth and turn aside to myths. 
In a similar way, our society has become attracted to what is mystical, new age, neo-pagan, as if the basic gospel is too boring. It reminds me of the condition of schools in the area of California where we used to live. So many schools had turned to using new and creative methods designed to entertain and maintain all kinds of attention. It became so overwhelming that two special schools were created just to offer back to the basic programs of reading and writing and math. Ironically, there was a three to six year waiting list to get into those back to the basic schools. People are realizing the real value of a basic education. In a similar way, the church needs to be reminded of the radical and challenging character of the basic foundational gospel itself. The genuine gospel of Jesus Christ is not boring or dull. It is not in need of entertaining and mystical methods of proclamation. After summarizing the events of Jesus' life in her own words, Dorothy Sayers came to this conclusion. So that is the outline of the official story. The tale of the time when God was the underdog and God got beaten when he submitted to the conditions he had laid down and became a man like the men he had made. And the men he had made broke him and killed him. That's the dogma we find so dull? This terrifying drama of which God is victim and hero. Now we can call that doctrine exhilarating, we can call it devastating. We can call it revelation. We can call it rubbish. But if we call it dull, then words have no meaning. That God should play the tyrant over man is a dismal story of unrelieved oppression. That man should play the tyrant over man is the usual dreary record of human futility. But that man should play the tyrant over God and find God a better man than himself is an astonishing drama indeed. Amen. These few opening verses in 2 Timothy give the pastor basic instructions regarding the call to preach. It is a solemn charge as though an oath in the presence of God. It's a call to preach none other than the Word. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the love which he practiced and taught. It's a call for the maintenance of sound doctrine in the church. We are here because we've heard such a call from God in the strength of the Spirit of the Lord. Let us go forth to continue our preparations and fulfill this call to preach for the advancement of God's kingdom.
song he said the psalms 96 says proclaim his salvation day after day carry it forth lord by the power of your holy spirit as your instruments for the advancement of your kingdom amen, amen.